You're listening to the Bible Nerd Podcast, a weekly show where we're exploring the world of the Bible, helping you fall more in love with Jesus, and building a thoughtful defense for the Christian worldview. I'm your host, Steve Schramm. Welcome to the show. Well, I hope you're doing well this week. Man, a lot's going on in the world as I speak this morning, but uh, I just pray that this is one place that you can come to every week for a just consistent presentation of God's love and God's work in the world. Um, frankly, something that I've done recently is just um, nuke the social media apps from my phone. And I've done this before, and every time I do, it helps because it just it really helps me um, refocus on the things in life that deserve my time and the priorities that I have that really matter to me. And I inevitably end up getting more done. I inevitably end up being less depressed. I inevitably uh, end up feeling better. So if there's, you know, it's important to be informed about things that are going on in the world. But let me tell you, um, you know, just take that small step. I mean, delete the things off of your phone. Even that, uh, I think, will help if you find yourself just getting, um, you know, distracted and maybe even a little depressed, um, if I may use that word, Um uh, with everything that's going on in the world. Well, before we dive into this week's episode, I just want to uh, say that this episode of the show is actually uh, sponsored by my business, North Mac Services. We do website design, we do graphic design, we do branding work. We really help you understand what your business needs to do in order to communicate to its customers well, or in your ministry. We work on ministry sites uh, quite a bit as well. So we can actually take and, and do kind of a whole branding um, strategy from the ground up. We can build a website for you. We can do graphic design work for you. And so I just wanted to let you know that, you know, uh, frankly, in a very literal sense, since the very beginning, my little uh, web design business has been the sponsor for the podcast, for the ministry in general. Uh, basically, it pays for this uh, hobby. I mean, it does more than that, but it also pays for this hobby. And um, I, I never really planned to take on an actual sponsor for the podcast. I've never really thought about it. But sure enough, uh, the show is sponsored by my website design business. So I thought I would mention that to you. If there's a way that I can help you in your website design, in your marketing, for your business, for your ministry, for a personal brand, if you have a nonprofit even, I would be honored to help you. So you can find out more about that by going to NorthMacServices.com, NorthMacServices.com. It's uh, spelled exactly like it sounds, NorthMac, all one word, services.com. All right, well, let's dive right in. So I want to uh, talk to you about a... Um, subject matter that it has been of, of interest to me as of late from different things that I've uh, spoken to people about and also that I have written about here on uh, the blog. And that is this idea of the historical Adam research that Dr. William Lane Craig has been undertaking. Now, today, what we're going to look at is, is not directly related to the question of the historical um, Adam, although it, it is very indirectly related, and it is certainly an aspect of the research that Craig is doing. So what we're going to talk about is this um, idea in Genesis chapter uh, 3, where we find God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Surely you're aware of this. This is um, in the chapter, of course, where the fall of man takes place. This is uh, just after Adam has um, 
taken of the fruit and uh, Eve has taken of the fruit as well and God is roaming about and um, essentially quote-unquote looking for Adam and Eve. So let's take a, a look at that little section of scripture to kind of set the stage for what's going on here. Provides a really sobering look uh, into, into the human condition here. Genesis uh, 3, 6 through 8 is what we're going to read here. Here's what it says. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them were both opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden of the cool of the day. In the cool of the day, excuse me. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now again, this familiar passage actually records the first instance of human sin. I mean, this is the event that set the downward spiral of God's precious creation in motion. And everything from that point on was corrupted. And man from that point on was to die spiritually. Okay, there was spiritual death. There was spiritual death and separation. And of course, I believe there was also physical death and separation. And there's some controversy as to how that comes about. But I certainly believe there was physical death and separation. Romans 5 makes that absolutely clear. However, it also creates a theological puzzle for some who are more interested in this question. Now, the passage actually teaches that the Lord was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, looking for Adam. He was walking. Now, believe it or not, and again, this uh, hopefully, since this is the Bible Nerd podcast, this won't surprise you, right? But uh, believe it or not, there's actually a legitimate question here. I mean, this seems like a small thing, or at least I can see how it would seem like a small thing to some. But how one actually views this passage could lead you to find a uh, particular genre of writing in the text. So I'm going to set up the problem, and then we'll discuss uh, some of the ways that this passage has been wrestled with by uh, some important thinkers and theologians. So uh, the Bible, of course, tells us some things about the nature of God tells us quite a bit, actually, I believe, about the nature of God. Uh, it directly tells us that he is a spirit. That's John 4.24. He obviously made the world and everything in it, and he dwells in a temple not made with hands. That's Acts 17.24. He's immortal, of course, and no man can see him. That's 1 Timothy 6.16. And he is eternal and invisible. And that's 1 Timothy 1.17. So that's what we can directly see about the nature and attributes of God. And of course, there are even more that we could say about that. But with respect to this question, that tells us pretty good that, that he is basically um, immortal, eternal, and invisible. Indirectly, we can infer some uh, very similar things from other spots in the text. For example... Um, the Bible assumes God exists from the very first verse. In other words, there's no argument for God from that point on. Uh, Genesis 1-1 simply says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now, there's no word for universe in Hebrew, uh, so the heavens and the earth is merely a Hebrew merism. And what a merism is, is where two contrasting parts are used to indicate the whole. So the heavens and the earth are two parts in contrast, and together they indicate the universe. So the point is that everything other than God was created by God. But again, if all that is true, and no one has seen God, and he's immaterial in nature, then how could he walk with Adam in the garden? You see how this is a legitimate question. The way that the text presents creates problems for a literal understanding of these other verses when it's talking about the nature of God. Now, it's even compounded further by the fact that in Exodus 33.20, God tells Moses this, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. So, in other words, if someone were to see God, he would die. He would die. So you see the problem. You can't see God, but if somebody could see God, he would die. And so you wouldn't be alive to see him anyway. So it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting problem. And so you can see how when, when you have words like this, it makes you think a little bit deeper about the context, about the genre, uh, etc. Now, again, I realize that if you're somebody who has studied into this question, you, you might even think I'm making too big of a deal about this. Well, again, um, yeah, this is the Bible Nerd Podcast, but I'm going to assume, because this is my hope and prayer, that we have some up-and-coming Bible nerds uh, listening and some uh, new Bible nerds. And so for those people, they might have never thought about this. I mean, why why on earth would such a trivial thing uh, matter to say that God is walking? What what kind of language is that? What's going on here? Well, so that's what we're going to dive into and describe here. And, and I would encourage you, even if you have studied into this, keep listening a little bit longer. Maybe you will learn a little something or a little different nugget that you haven't heard before, or maybe heard, you'll hear something presented in a way that you haven't heard it before, and maybe this will help you make a better sense of the issue for yourself. We can always learn something, even from those uh, who are teaching something that we already know. So over the years, I've heard many different uh, positions and solutions that aim to account for the way we should understand this odd passage of Scripture. And we're going to deal with pretty much three uh, here. One is that it's merely a theophany, and we'll explain some of these terms. The other is that it's merely anthropomorphic language. And the other one says that it's both a theophany and it's anthropomorphic language. In other words, it's not either one in exclusivity, it's both and. Now, at first glance, this probably doesn't seem like such a big deal, but based on what could be argued, remember, given the conclusion that one reaches here, it actually quickly does become a big deal. William Lane Craig, as I mentioned at the beginning that we were going to be going through uh, his, his thoughts on this, uh, he actually argues that this passage utilizes merely anthropomorphic language, which could ostensibly place it squarely within the mytho-historical interpretation he has offered of late, okay? And again, we'll talk about that as we go on. I don't want to get bogged down with that right here, but essentially he says that Genesis is history, but it has a uh, mythical, in the folklorist sense, element to it, such that 
it shouldn't be taken with a sort of strict literalism, even though there is some historical elements to it. So we'll talk a little bit more about that soon. All right, what about this then? Is it merely a theophany? Is it merely a theophany? Well, so a theophany refers broadly to a human form or otherwise human perceptible manifestation of Yahweh. Now, the human form theophanies in the Old Testament are are often referred to as Christophanies on the basis that uh, these appearances of God are best explained as pre-incarnate manifestations of the second person of the Trinity. And I don't know whether or not I fully agree with that. My preference is not to use the language of Christophany. Something about that just doesn't quite sound right to me, but it is pretty popular language. Um, and this actually, this definition came from a, uh, a, a, well-known publication uh, that deals in Bible interpretation and commentary. It's actually the Baker Encyclopedia, pardon me, uh, of the Bible. So in the Baker Encyclopedia, it talks about these Christophanies. So if you've ever wondered about that, uh, for you uh, serious Bible nerds, uh, you can look at it that way. Again, I don't know if the language is quite precise, but uh, there you go. So the verses in question uh, would actually seem to evidence a visual manifestation of Yahweh. A theophany. This is what they potentially seem like. Now, the Lexham Bible Dictionary defines the term this way, quote, a theophany is an appearance of God that people can discern. Not all appearances of God are recognized by people. The term comes from the Greek theos, God, and the verb phaneo, which is to appear or to be revealed. Since people cannot possibly process God's nature as a disembodied, formless spirit, theophany allows God to make his presence known in a physical way that people can discern through their senses. Theophanies also address the problem in the Old Testament that people cannot withstand direct contact with the unfiltered divine presence. See again there, Exodus 33.20, and you can compare Deuteronomy 5.24, Judges 6.22-23, and 13.22. Theophany both protects people and allows for contact with God. So that's important. Uh, Let me stop there and say this, that theophany both protects people and allows for contact with God. In other words, theophany solves some of these problems. All right, continuing, theophanies in the Old Testament occur when God takes form in the natural world as a phenomena like wind, spirit, or the burning bush, or when God takes human form like the angel of Yahweh, close quote. So the natural question is then, well, does does this event in Scripture in Genesis 3 here actually qualify? Well, of course, there are varying opinions. Some believe that this event does not qualify because there is language missing that seems to be present in other pericopes, which uh, are supposedly more obvious instances of Theophany. Now, I'm going to read a lengthy excerpt from uh, from William Lane Craig here, and he's going to argue along these lines in response to a question that has been asked in his Defender series. Quote, there are lots of theophanies in the Old Testament, but is that the most plausible interpretation of Genesis 2 to 3? I raised two reasons for thinking that it is not. One, Genesis 2 to 3 lacks the language indicative of a theophany. In Genesis 18.1, we read, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. There is nothing like that in Genesis 2-3. to 
And two, God is described anthropomorphically in Genesis 2-3, even when he is not appearing to anyone. The first example is in the description of his fashioning Adam out of the dust of the earth and breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. This cannot be an appearance to Adam because Adam wasn't even alive yet. The second example is God's fashioning Eve out of Adam's rib. Since God had put Adam to sleep to perform this surgery, God cannot be appearing to Adam. Since he is unconscious, and of course Eve doesn't even exist yet, so God isn't appearing to her. Now you challenge my first reason for thinking that Genesis 2-3 are not describing theophanies. You point out that the other language, or excuse me, that the language of appearing is absent from some theophanies. Consider the cases cited from the Pentateuch, since these are the relevant cases for Genesis. Notice that although Jacob's wrestling with a man in Genesis 32, 22-30 does not use the language of God's appearing to him, it is so characterized in retrospect. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Genesis 35, 9-10 The very renaming of Jacob mentioned in the wrestling episode. Similarly, Genesis 35, 1 says, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and make there an altar to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau referring back to Jacob's dream in Genesis 28, 10-17. Jacob's life was apparently punctuated by a series of divine theophanies providentially directing Jacob. In some cases, there are some expressions that tip off the reader that one is dealing with a theophany. For example, in the appearance to Hagar, we encounter the mysterious figure of the angel of the Lord who is described as an angel and yet also as Lord and God. In Genesis 31, 3-13, Jacob describes a similar figure in a dream who is both the angel of God and yet the God of Bethel, who, you'll remember, appeared to Jacob there. In the appearance to Moses in Exodus 3, 2, we read, The angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now, in Genesis 2-3, this sort of language is entirely missing. There is neither language of God's appearing nor of the mysterious angel of the Lord. These stories just don't read like theophanies. Taken together with my second point, that in Genesis 2-3, God is described anthropomorphically even when he is not appearing to anyone, I think that construing the human descriptions of God in Genesis 2-3 as literary anthropomorphisms is more plausible than taking them to be literal theophanies, close quote. Okay, so that was an extensive quote from Bill Craig there going through his objections to taking this uh, as a theophany and therefore his preference to view this passage as describing anthropomorphic language only. Now, prima facie, I think Craig makes a pretty compelling case, but there is one major a priori assumption, in other words, an assumption that's taking place before evaluation of the evidence that's undergirding his response, which is going to threaten the entire argument. Although the language of appearance nor the language of the angel is there, why think that we must look for them? Okay, now I'm going to mention something here that Craig addressed 
briefly, he did say that the entire objection coming from the person is that sometimes theophanies are going on where these two features of language are uh, missing, the angel of the Lord, the appearance language, etc. And Craig says, okay, well, we should look to the Pentateuch uh, to get that. Um, but I'm just not so sure, again, that he is using a helpful definition of theophany as described by Hebrew scholars. I, I think that Craig is kind of, uh, I hate to say it this way, but in a sense, almost making up his own rules here, given especially how Old Testament scholars actually define the term. Um, there's a broad range of applications. So let me just give you the Lexham Bible Dictionary here on such manifestations in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, quote, here, God appears uh, in various ways, including as a force of nature. These forms are manifested in storms accompanied by thunder and lightning, Exodus 19, 16, 2 Samuel 22, 12 through 16, Psalm 18, 9 through 12, Amos, uh, in the Masoretic 10 through 13, Amos 1, 2, Zechariah 9, 14. Closely associated with these natural appearances is God's manifestation in the form of fire. Genesis 15, 7, Exodus 3, 2, 19, 18, Deuteronomy 1, 33, Judges 6, 21, 2 Chronicles 7, 1, Nehemiah 9, 12, and 19, and smoke, Exodus 19, 18, 2 Samuel 22, 9, Psalm 18, 18, Isaiah 4, 5, and 6, 4. God's presence is sometimes accompanied by things similar to volcanic activity. Exodus 19.18, Deuteronomy 4.11, Psalm 97.5, excuse me, 104.32, Nahum 1.5 and 6, as well as earthquakes. Exodus 19.16-25, Psalm 68, 7-8, Isaiah 29, 5-6, and clouds. Exodus 13, 21, 34, 5, Numbers 9, 15-22, and Ezekiel 1, 4. Outside of these elemental theophanies, God is pictured in human forms as well. Adam and Eve hear the sound of God walking in the garden, Genesis 3, 8. Abraham is visited by three men at Mamre, Genesis 18, 1-2. Jacob wrestles with God as he appears as a man, Genesis 32, 24, 28, and Moses views God's back, Exodus 33, 18 through 23. The angel of the Lord, who conveys divine messages, Genesis 16, 7 through 12, 21, 17 through 18, nay, uh, excuse me, Numbers 22, 32 through 35, sometimes turned out to be God himself. Genesis 18, 16 through 17, Numbers 22, 22 through 35, Judges 6, 11 through 23, 13, 3 through 22, Zechariah 3, 1 through 2. God also appears as a divine warrior leading Israel into battle, Exodus 15, Deuteronomy 33, 2, Psalm 24, 8, and at times fighting against Israel because of their disobedience, that's Isaiah 9, 8 through 10 and verse 11, or in the Masoretic 9, 7 through 10, and also in Micah 1. So, uh, I just gave you a very extensive list there of scripture there from the Lexham Bible Dictionary that is in support of these theophanies. And as you can see, I mean, 
for scholars of the Old Testament, there is no such restriction as this appearance language or or that the mysterious angel of the Lord figure must be present in terms of classifying a sort of theophanic manifestation. That is not a necessary requirement. So Craig's assessment on this point is actually... I think, um, almost assuming what it's trying to prove, or uh, we might say it a little more charitably that uh, perhaps Craig is just missing this context for his definition here. Um, and, and he certainly, I think, should expand uh, to the Old Testament scholars' criteria for a theophany. And more to the point, the passage does not seem to be merely theophonic in nature. Uh, it does seem to include anthropomorphic language, absolutely. Um, it has this language that attributes human characteristics to God, and we'll return to the synthesis of these concepts in just a, a moment here. All right, so for now, let's discuss if the language contained could be merely anthropomorphic. So I mentioned earlier that it may not be immediately obvious why such an obscure-sounding issue matters, and I hinted that it would have something to do with identifying the genre of a text. And this is the exact trajectory that Craig wants to go down in his argument for taking it as a mere literary anthropomorphism. Now, if this instance and others like it that are recorded in Genesis 2-3 are not theophonic but are merely anthropomorphic, then they could properly belong to the folkloric category of myth. And that is what... Craig wants to argue. And let me just say right here, this is a good spot to, to, to mention that while I'm not sympathetic to Craig's view here, it should be noted that when he uses the word myth, he's not taking it to mean something like fairy tale, uh, as the word commonly means today. That's not what's going on. He spends no little time in his lectures and in his teachings making sure that his listeners understand that the idea of myth here, in the sense that he's using the term, describes uh, etiological concerns about a respective people group. Um, to, to put that in, in you know, layman's terms, uh, it's the origin story of a people group. The origin story of a people group. Now, it should also be made clear that the definition of myth that Craig uses is certainly not agreed upon by scholars. So John Oswald has a lengthy discussion of this in his uh, book, The Bible Among the Myths, which we reviewed a while back on the blog, and it's worth checking out for sure. So for our purposes, it's just going to be pretty prudent to understand that when we use this word uh, myth, we're meaning it in a very technical sense. We're using it in this etiological sense where not everything can be taken uh, literally. So it's a myth in the sense of it's... It, you know, not everything is literal, but it's mytho history because Greg still wants to preserve some of the historical elements of it. Now, you know, you might ask, well, which elements are historical? Well, that's a pretty hard question for Craig to answer by his own admission. I'm going to let him uh, explain his own thinking a little further here. Quote, read in light of Genesis 3, God's creation of Adam in Genesis 2 takes on an anthropomorphic character as well. Here God is portrayed like the Mesopotamian goddess Ninter, shaping bits of clay into a human being, or the Egyptian god Kanum, sitting at his potter's wheel forming man, as fashioning man out of the dust of the ground, and then breathing into his nostrils the breath of life, so that the earthen figure comes to life. We're not told whether God similarly formed the animals when out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and bird of the air, Genesis 2.19. 
but we can't help but wonder if they weren't formed in the same way as man. When God takes one of the sleeping Adam's ribs, closes up the flesh, and builds a woman out of them, the story sounds like a physical surgery, which God performs on Adam, followed by his building a woman out of the extracted body part. Similarly, given God's bodily presence in the garden, the conversations between God and the protagonists in the story of the fall, namely Adam, Eve, and the serpent, read like a dialogue between persons who are physically present to one another. God's making garments for Adam and Eve out of the animal skins and driving them out of the garden sound again like physical acts by the humanoid God. Given these exalted transcendent nature, excuse me, given the exalted transcendent nature of God described in the creation story, the Pentateuchal author could not possibly have intended these anthropomorphic descriptions to be taken literally. They are in the figurative language of myth, close quote. So for Craig, these instances, along with the others he mentions about the water cycle and the tree of life, if you actually go back to his... um, lectures there, are fantastic, by which he means palpably false, and and therefore are intended to be figurative and symbolic. So to clarify a bit for the significance of this, if Craig can show that these passages utilize merely literary anthropomorphism, then he can avoid the need to interpret the passage as though the events took place as stated. And this is a view that the theophanic interpretation would pretty much require. So what does he appeal to, to take this position? As we saw above there, um, he seems to appeal to two places. First, the existence of the clay motif that's found in other ancient cultures. And then also the contrast between the exalted nature of God in the creation story and what would seem to be implied by taking these descriptions literally. So with respect to the first, I actually find this a really odd and almost ironic, actually, position for Craig to take. The reason is that he denies a functional or vocational view of the image of God because the closest ancient Near Eastern parallel to the idea that he could find in his research comes out of Egypt, where the image is tied to incarnation, which is an obvious departure from the biblical account. In a similar fashion, as we're going to see here, the biblical account seems to starkly contrast those that Craig mentions. He also readily denies the notion that the stories in Genesis have been merely borrowed from other cultures and demythologized. But given all of these were written down prior to the biblical account, he would seem forced to take a sort of shared history position when it comes to A&E, or ancient Near Eastern, parallels. Meaning, the reason for the similarities in the text is the shared history these people groups once had prior to the dispersion at Babel in Genesis chapter 11. But now, if, if this is the case, then we needn't assume that Genesis shares the same genre as these other texts. Instead, we can look to Genesis for the true story, for the true historical description, and take the other occurrences throughout the A&E as distortions of the true event. Now, this may come across at first like special pleading of some sort, but I think there are three reasons to think that it's not. First, there are many clear differences between the way the account is recorded in Genesis and the way these accounts are presented in ancient Near Eastern 
literature. Now, this is honestly just a giant topic and uh, certainly one that we cannot spend time on here, but suffice it to say that in nearly all cases, reading the creation account in Genesis, beside even the closest of similar accounts from around the ancient world, reveals drastic differences. And funny enough, this is a contention that Craig agrees with. So for Craig to appeal to similarity with other myths here actually would seem to contradict his belief in how strikingly different these passages are when you compare them to others from around the ancient Near East. Secondly, these texts give every expected indication of Hebrew historical narrative. And this is a pretty significant point. In their paper, Genesis 1-11 through as historical narrative, Phillips and Fouts provide 11 reasons to think these portions of scripture represent Hebrew historical narrative. Here's what they conclude, quote, in short, there are numerous grammatical, contextual, and theological reasons to believe that Genesis 1-11 through is Hebrew historical narrative. Included among the implications which follow from such a position are that, one, humanity's origin is taken back to Adam on, the, on day six of the creation week. Two, the age of humanity is directly tied to and derivable from the historical chronogenealogies in Genesis 5 and 11. And three, the burden of exegetical proof rests on anyone who interprets the days of the creation week to mean anything other than 24-hour days, close quote. Now, of course, um, it's, it's quite obvious that their objective there in the paper is to uh, speak to a broader point about the days of creation, but the point they make is still sound. These passages have all the markers of Hebrew historical narrative and are best taken as such. So, since these passages were written in uh, Biblical Hebrew, we should use what we do know about Biblical Hebrew texts in order to determine their genre. So, while it's true that symbolic and or figurative writing can certainly contain historical information, the degree to which that information is actually historical is quite vague. And this is something that's not my claim. Actually, Craig has affirmed this himself in lectures and interviews when he's been asked. Um, and you can find a link to that uh, in the show notes on that point. It's footnote number seven. So since these passages are uh, likely written narratively, the biblical clay motif is most plausibly to be read in factual terms. In factual terms, we can actually take the text at face value here as written. Third and finally, the clay motif is written more realistically. And that's to say that it actually lacks the sort of fantastic detail that the extra biblical accounts Craig mentions contain. Now, this seems to be the point with other pericopes as well in regards to Genesis 1-11, through 11, such as the flood story. And, of course, opinions on this vary widely. Some think the biblical flood never even happened, which uh, I think is a ridiculous hypothesis. Uh, some think it was only regional. Some think it was worldwide, etc., but one virtually undeniable fact is that the biblical flood story as written is more realistic than any other of Israel's neighbors, as uh, studies such as John Woodmerap's uh, Ark Feasibility Study has shown. And we've actually covered that material 
uh, before on a very early episode of the podcast dealing with flood myths and legends. And there's some really significant material there uh, with respect to the kinds of material and the kinds of stories that you find from around the ancient world when dealing with the flood. Nevertheless, there are some um, stark differences in the amount of detail and the type of detail that you'll find in the biblical story. And uh, by all accounts, it is much more of a realistic story than the others that uh, are are competing, so to speak, uh, for that uh, place. Now, in Genesis 3, notice that we don't see any mention of the potter's wheel or an exaggeration uh, in the shaping of the individual or anything of that sort. We don't see any of this uh, kind of inflated uh, language. All we see is this. The text merely says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Again, there's nothing extravagant there. There's no, there's uh, no, um, y- you know, pomp and circumstance to the text. It just seems to be explaining what God did. Now, it, this is hardly fantastic or surprising. Uh, after all, nobody disputes that Jesus uses clay, right, to heal or restore a blind man during his earthly ministry. So how might God have described this account differently for ancient readers whose vocabulary actually lacked scientific precision? And really think about that. I want you to think about that point. Because if uh, if this is what God intended to say, in other words, he actually did it this way, and so this is what he intended to say in regards to how he did it, the question that I would ask is, what would he have said differently? How could he have said it differently to convince you that he was saying it realistically, that he meant it to be taken as an account that actually happened? And I think that's a very hard question to answer for somebody who denies that this is the factual way and this is the literal way, so to speak, that it should have been read. Now, Here's what's really interesting. The stark difference here actually brings to mind another stark difference that Craig often mentions himself in his debates and lectures. And this is just really interesting, I think. Um, It's the legendary retelling of the empty tomb story found in the pseudepigraphical Gospel of Peter, which contains such fantastic details as uh, a talking cross which extends up into the heavens. I mean, it's it's pretty ridiculous stuff. And so uh, Craig uh, often takes this and uses this as an example of the kind of thing that we don't find in the Gospels, which he argues, of course, are um, the legitimate record. So critics argue that the canonical Gospel accounts do, in fact, include legendary details, though, uh, like the angel, for example, that was present at the tomb. So how does Craig anticipate this notion? Because he knows it's coming. He knows the claim about the angel is coming. So here's the fourth leg of his argument for the historicity of the empty tomb narrative. Quote, The nature of the narrative itself is theologically unadorned and non-apologetic. The resurrection is not described, and we have noted the lack of later theological motifs that a late legend might be expected to contain. This suggests the account is primitive and factual, even if dramatization occurs in the role of the angel, close quote. Now, I want you to really get what I'm saying here. Notice this, that on the, on the basis of what is missing, Craig concludes we have historical writing, despite the fact that one motif here, the angel, might have some sort of literary dramatization going on. But this does not lead him to conclude that it's not factual, okay? 
This does not lead him to conclude it's not factual. Now, if he were responding to my accusation, he might take issue because of the genre of the Gospels. In fact, I know he would. He would say, but but you have to understand, these are different. The, the, the Gospels are Greco-Roman biography. Well, I agree with that, but that just is the issue. Absolutely. The Gospels are demonstrably Greco-Roman biography. And in the same vein, I believe that the early chapters of Genesis are demonstrably Hebrew historical narrative. And on that assumption, on that assumption, a mere reference to God's forming man from dust is hardly anything like what we see in the ancient Near Eastern world. No mention of this exalted stuff like potter's wheels and things of that nature, these extravagant uh, explanations. It's not like what we find in the Genesis account. It's just a factual statement of what happened. And again, it would be really hard um, to produce evidence that God would have would have arranged things or, or said things uh, a different way. So for these reasons and more that we don't have time to go into here, I believe that Craig's first reason, which is the clay motif, is not sufficient to show that this account is um, mythological in nature. Now, let's talk about this other uh, idea here, the exalted nature of God. This is the second of his reasons, which I've paraphrased as the contrast between the exalted nature of God in the creation story and what would seem to be implied by taking these descriptions literally. Okay, now this seems extremely vague because I mean, look at the entire biblical record. Doesn't it seem that the entire biblical record is clear about the exalted transcendent nature of God? And and yet it describes his interactions with humankind within spatiotemporal history. I mean, we looked at verses early on in this study that seemed to declare these things about God, that God was transcendent, that God held everything together, that everything other than God was created by God, that he was immortal, that he was invisible, that anybody who could even look upon him in the fullness of his glory would just simply die. They couldn't even look upon him. I mean, so we get this idea of the transcendent, exalted nature of God from the entire corpus of scripture, not just these verses. So it's really hard to understand what Craig could be grappling with here that would actually uh, go to his point. And theologically, it would seem preferable to read the account this way, right? Because in ancient Near Eastern traditions, humanity is merely an afterthought. They're created to be subservient to the gods, to, to do their bidding, to feed them, etc. But in contrast, the biblical record presents the one true transcendent creator God who wanted a human family and created mankind in his image that he would be able to love and commune with God. And so, in fact, um, God is not far removed, but rather has this regular, in-present, communal relationship with those whom he first created. So, in other words, what we're saying here is that it's actually preferable to say that, yes, Scripture as a whole presents God as this transcendent, exalted being, and yet he desires love and relationship and community with his imagers and and, and beyond those things even co-rulership co-regency so it's really just uh, amazing how much more preferable it would be to read the account this way so 
um, the very fact which Craig seems to think undermines taking this uh, anthropomorphism literally actually seems to argue for taking it literally, which is um, something that I, I didn't necessarily uh, aim or, or believe that I was going to uncover when I lo was looking into this study and writing out this study. But uh, sure enough, it's what I came to. And I think this is a really, really um, a positive uh, conclusion. Um, now, what about this? We'll just spend a second here. Is it both? Is it both anthropomorphism and theophany? Well, I think so. Um, as is the case with many other things in biblical interpretation, uh, it just simply might not be a thing of either or. It could just be a case of both and. Now, it's not to say that two contradictory things could be true at the same time, but these aren't contradictory. Um, we're just saying that one may not be necessarily um, true over and above the other. It's not going to rule out the other. Um, and just, again, to, to, to kind of capitalize on this, can a passage be both poetic and historical? Some people don't think it can be, but of course it can. Uh, look at Deborah in Judges chapter 5. There we see a poetic retelling of a clearly historical story. So we, it's not always either or. A lot of times it's both and. So we've seen really good reason to think that this passage in question, Genesis 3, has the hallmarks of both theophanic ex uh, excuse me, appearance and uh, also literary anthropomorphism. To take one over the other really doesn't seem to do justice to what we actually find in the text. And Heiser's textual note, Michael Heiser in the Faith Life Study Bible, actually argues that it's both. He says this, quote, the signals that the writer wants the reader to picture God as a human being and anthropomorphism present in, or excuse me, this signals that the writer wants the reader to picture God as a human being and anthropomorphism present in the Garden of Eden. This is the first theophany in the Old Testament, an appearance of God to human beings in a manner that can be processed by the human senses, close quote. So this is an Old Testament scholar who clearly seems to see both here, and that seems to be giving it a more well-rounded view of the passage. So it actually strains the text uh, badly to imagine it as one over the other. So what does this all mean? Um, well, as we've seen, while it may not appear significant at first glance, it turns out that if this passage can be said to be merely anthropomorphic, then it may lend credence to the notion that this passage is mytho-historical, or at least that it contains uh, sort of mythic elements. But the evidence doesn't bear this out. It really doesn't. Um, we've seen instead that there's reason to think that Old Testament scholars have correctly identified this as a uh, theophanic uh, appearance, which uh, places it in the theologically satisfying position of being a literal view. This is so great. I love this. Of being a literal view into God's close communion with and condescension to his human imagers right from the very beginning. This is God not distant and far away. This is God close to us at the very beginning in a very real and a very um, experiential way, in a very close way. And it's really a shame that that communion was broken and destroyed by sin. But again, this just goes and speaks to the gravity of the situation. But it was a real, personal, in-person, literally, uh, relationship going on there in the very beginning. And uh, thank God he made a way for us to have that sort of communion with him again. And certainly we can't 
uh, wait till one day get to enjoy uh, his 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 presence uh, like that for all of eternity, and that's going to be a wonderful time for sure. Well, I want to thank you very much for joining us another week here on the Bible Nerd Podcast. Let me just stress: I've been stressing this, and it's been working. Um, uh, our numbers have have gone up dramatically week over week. Uh, in some episodes, uh, almost over a hundred more downloads per week are are happening, and that's uh, that's really great. I'm really excited about that. That's a huge uh, increase for us. So. Um, I would love for you to keep on, if you're enjoying this podcast, if you enjoy what we bring to the table, the perspectives, even if you don't always agree, uh, I try to be fair to everybody and I try to give everybody a fair hearing and not just dismiss anybody's view out of hand. Um, the, the theme around here is arguments and evidence, arguments and evidence. If you have a, a disagreement, if you have a certain way you want to present something, show me the arguments, show me the evidence, uh, chapter, verse, uh, philosophy, science, show it to me and we'll go from there, right? So that's how we do things around here. And that's how I very much try to present things to you, arguments and evidence. We don't take anything for granted when we can help it. So um, again, God bless you. Please tell somebody else about the podcast. That's your mission, right? I want to create Nerd Nation, okay? I want more people to become Bible nerds and to fall in love with the Bible. So please don't hesitate to share this content with somebody else. Um, the world is starving for good biblical content in a day where so much is changing around politically and culturally and things of that nature. We really need something that's constant. And the Bible is always constant. And those who are doing the work of trying their best to explain what the Bible is teaching in in, in a in a deep and uh, really meaningful way, uh, I think should be given platform uh, in these days. And I'm not just saying that for my sake. There are many others who do similar to what I do. I pray and hope that you share their things as well. So next week, uh, in again, that same spirit, we're going to tackle the five contexts of biblical interpretation. And I took uh, next week's uh, blog post and, and podcast episode from the upcoming book that I have coming out on how to fall in love with the Bible. So this is an excerpt from one of the chapters where I deal with um, what I'm calling the five contexts of biblical interpretation. A lot of people think as, of context as uh, the five verses before and after the current verse that you're reading and trying to expound. And um, while there's at least some level of truth to that, there is a lot more, a lot more to understanding the contexts of the Bible. So that's what we're going to look at next week. So thank you again for joining us. I hope you have a absolutely wonderful week. Hey, don't forget this episode and uh, every episode for the foreseeable future is sponsored by my business, North Mac Services. We do, again, website design, graphic design, logo design, marketing, things of that nature. If you need any help for your ministry, business, or nonprofit, I would be honored to have a phone conversation with you or you know talk over email or something like that, and we could work something out. Um, again, that uh, is a one of the best ways to support this ministry is to do business with me. So if you have a need in that area, I would be happy to help you out. All right, God bless you, and We'll see you next week.